Well, we've been some interesting places these last few weeks, together as a group, not like personally, but together. We started out three weeks ago saying, quit going to church, and thank God you're still here. Because that wasn't the point. If you remember, we talked at length about the fact that um, church isn't just a, a building, a place that you show up at a certain time on a certain day for a few hours, a few minutes, however long it is. Uh, a church isn't an organization, although a church has organizational properties. A, a church is an organism. It's the very body of Christ, and we are all parts of it. We are all members of it. We belong to one another. We discussed what it meant uh, it, to, to sort of cliche that phrase to not go to church, but to be the church, to live as God's people in in unison and fellowship, trying to impact our world. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about quit saying your prayers. Quit the idea that somehow prayer is a, a rote memory process, although we have some prayers that, that maybe we quote from time to time. The most notable you might think of is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven and all that follows that. But prayer isn't something that, that is just uh, a duty or an obligation or some sort of memorized recitation to God that if you say the right words in the right way, he's pleased. No, prayer is a means to relationship. Prayer is an intimate communication with the God who loved you enough to send his one and only son, Jesus, to die. And then last week we said, quit reading your Bible, which is really odd for me to say because I believe the Bible is the word of God that he has inspired and preserved for us so that we can pick it up and in it, find the very revelation of God himself, the very word of God to us. But if all we do is is go through and, and read it to check off a to-do list, to get through the Bible in a year, whatever it is, we miss the fact that it, too, is a means to relationship. That in God's word, he shows us his way so that we might come to know him. And so having said all that at sea, I think this is the last week. You're probably glad. One, because we've been doing this a while. And two, because I'm, I'm afraid if I keep going... You will actually take this to heart, and I won't see anybody next week. So nonetheless, we'll just, here's, your, here's your encouragement for this week. Quit trying to be good. Isn't that exciting? The preacher is saying, quit trying to be good. Now, yeah, okay. Apparently, that's got some traction. Well, maybe I should have started here. Nonetheless, quit trying to be good. We as Christians are... Well, a lot of times just reduced to that. We just want to do good stuff. We want to be good. We want to behave. It's what our parents told us, right, from the time we were very small. You be good now, whether it's going to school or going out to play with your friends or whatever it is. Just You just be good. But the interesting thing about that is the way we often parse that in our minds and the way we often express it by how we live is a very self-centered, we might say, or certainly self-powered way of trying to somehow please God. That what we have to do, that when God looks down at us, there are certain behaviors we should on the one hand practice and on the other hand avoid. And if we just practice the stuff we're supposed to practice and avoid the stuff we're supposed to avoid, God looks down and goes, there you've got it. But have you noticed? that we have a tendency to not be good. In fact, some of you have not been good today. 
Am I right? Some of you have been bad this morning. Maybe we should just set up a microphone and have true confessions. I see brothers pointing at sisters. That's usually how it works, yes. And maybe brothers pointing. No matter how much we try to be good, can we agree sometimes we can't be good? Sometimes it feels good to be bad. Isn't that sad? Yeah, we've got some witnesses. Now, I don't want you to think you're alone in that because there's a guy you may have heard of by the name of Paul. He was the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 books that are part of what we call the New Testament in our Bible. And Paul said in one of those books, in the book of Romans, I really, really, really want to be good. But sometimes I'm just bad. That's a very poor paraphrase. He said, the, the good I want to do, I don't. And the stuff I don't want to do, that's the very stuff I keep on doing. whole chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 7, deals with that idea. Paul a Bible writer, an apostle who started churches all over that part of the world, the known world at the time, who's as much responsible for us being here as, as anybody outside of Jesus, the apostle to the Gentiles, would say himself, sometimes the more I try to be good, the more I can't be good. Now the good news is, that's not all he had to say about it. And rather than camp out there, which there's a lot in that chapter, we're going to look at a couple of other things he wrote. And he wrote them in another book of the Bible, in the book of Galatians. He wrote lots of letters. His, most of what we have are the writings of Paul, or letters to groups of Christians, churches around that part of the world. Some he started himself, others he corresponded with as, as one of the leaders of the early church. And in the book of Galatians, if you're going to oversimplify it, you could say part of what Galatians is about is written to people who were their whole life told that you have to follow certain rules to be pleasing to God. And Paul's saying, stop it because it doesn't work, which is an interesting thing. And Galatians chapter 5 is the first place we're going to jump in. Galatians chapter five sixteen. If I could say what's the principle we're getting at, this is probably it. This is the takeaway. If you're going to write something down, maybe write these next few things down. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. If you're going to rememberize it, rememberize Galatians five sixteen. Paul writes this, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Great concept. An amazing thing. What does it mean? Well, it means, how are you going to focus your life going forward in in trying to live for God? There are really sort of two ideas. One idea is the second part of that. You're going to tell yourself, I'm going to be good. And another way to say that is, I'm going to not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. A little bit later in this passage, Paul says the desires of the sinful nature are obvious, and he lists a bunch of things that church people don't talk about and certainly don't do. You can read it for yourself. I didn't put it on the screen. And he says, these things are obvious. I don't have to tell you these are bad things that you shouldn't ought to do. But here's what happens is when we focus on the not gratifying the desires of the sinful nature, guess what our focus is? On the desires of the sinful doggone nature. Anybody ever been on a diet? Like I'm going to lose a few pounds and I'm going to eat right. 
And then you go to the grocery store. And did you notice the produce section, which has all those helpful fruits and vegetables? Where do they put that thing? I'm, I, I'm talking public, so that's my point of reference here locally. It's You go in the door, it's in the far corner. And if you're like me, to get there, you might walk by various aisles. One thing you might walk by is the deli. And you know what Publix makes often in their deli? You got it. Have you ever stood behind somebody in line at Publix that just got a pack of fried chicken and is checking out? Isn't that like, I mean, if you're against chicken, it's a Baptist church. I'm sorry. It's the Baptist bird. It's where we go. But anyway, it is a delightful aroma. Is it not? Am I the only one that feels that way? Okay, good. I mean, I've seen some of you with your little pack of popcorn chicken. I wasn't going to call you out, but nonetheless, I see how it is. And you smell that. What do you think? Oh, that smells so good. But I'm on a diet. i got to go to the vegetables. Chicken, breaded with all that stuff, and then put in lots of deep fat and fried till crispy golden brown. Oh, that sounds so good, but what I really want is a cucumber. Oh, I smell it again. I can't believe this person here in the produce section by the celery has brought with them a bag of fried chicken that is wafting ever so deliciously through the aisles and telling me what I really want is fried chicken, and that's all I can think about. And I pick up the celery, and I put it in my basket, and I say, curse you, celery, you're not fried chicken. And I pick up another helpful bit of whatever, put it in my basket, and where's my brain? Fried, doggone chicken. What am I thinking about? The thing I don't want. And suddenly my whole thought process in the store goes from, I want to make wise choices and eat healthfully and hopefully improve my health, maybe lose a few pounds, whatever, to I really want some fried chicken, but I can't have it. You know how long you can think, I really want some fried chicken and I can't have it before you have it? Three aisles is my record. I almost got the four one. But that was, I mean, you, you understand that, right? And we could put anything in there. You could, you could think about these things, these desires of the sinful nature, as Galatians 5 spells them out, as horrible as we might say those things sound at times, if your mind is focused on them, if your thinking is consumed with them, even in a negative way, I'm not going to fill in the blank. The focus of your attention is on that thing. And ultimately, that focus will pull you toward that thing that you swore you weren't going to do. So Paul says, not, I tell you, do not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, and then you will live by the Spirit. No, he puts it the other way around. The focus should be on living by the Spirit, the Spirit of God that he gives us that will guide us, that will guide us into all truth, that will empower us, that will convict us, all of the roles of the Holy Spirit of God given to His children. When we live by the Spirit, the result is, naturally, we just don't do the things that gratify the sinful nature. But when we try to not gratify the sinful nature, the reverse is not true. We don't naturally live by the Spirit. So we've got to have this 
perspective in mind. This is Paul's order of things. A couple of verses later, he says this in verse 18. Next slide, guys, whenever you're ready. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, I told you a minute ago, Paul wrote this letter to people that were trying to to live by the law. There was quite the controversy in the early church over how much of the law you had to stick to, how much of the Jewish law, even people who believed in and followed Christ, was required. In fact, Acts 15 is, uh, some people call it the first church business meeting, where they decided what parts of the law stuck, even for Gentile Christians. And a lot of that was quite the controversy, and a lot of new believers, because the the, the church, the New Testament church, the followers of Jesus grew out of a Jewish background, Jesus himself being Jewish, were drawn to the law. And it seemed like a good idea to do that. But Paul says when you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now, this is kind of a partner idea to the other one. The law has all sorts of provisions in it. 613 is the generally accepted number of provisions in the Old Testament law. 613 specific do's and do nots. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. I dare say you don't even handle the top 10 so well. Much less the other 603. And we've talked about that in other contexts. You know, the lying, the, the you know, bearing false witness or lying, the stealing, taking things that aren't yours, uh, murder. Jesus says, hey, if you've ever been uh, mad enough at your brother that you hated them, you've as good as killed them. Uh, adultery, well, that's horrible. But Jesus says, guys, if you've looked on a woman lustfully, you've as good as committed adultery with her. By those standards, as uh, the way of the master and other things, we are, well, lying, thieving, adulterers. Go team Jesus, right? That's who we are. If we follow that criteria, we can't keep that. And so if we want to, put ourselves under that law, knowing we can't even keep the top 10, how in the world are we going to deal with the other 600 plus? No, rather, Paul says, be led by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature, and you're not under the law. He goes on a couple verses later and continues this argument, and he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and he lists, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Isn't that awesome? So be led by the Spirit, and you're not under law. When you're led by the Spirit, this is the way your life looks. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, and self-control. And all of those things aren't against the law. So naturally being led by the Spirit keeps you A, from breaking the law, but B, from being under the law. Because in addition to the do's and don'ts of the law, there's prescriptions in the law for what happens when you do the don'ts or don't the do's. Does that make sense? Did I get that right or backwards? Do the don't. Yeah, okay, we'll go with that. Some of them are pretty drastic. Like, for instance, you get killed. Caught in adultery? Jesus, woman caught in adultery, what are they going to do to her? Stone her to death. Throw stones at her, hit her with rocks until she's dead. That's horrible to think about. That's, 
I can't even imagine. But that was part of the prescription of the law. So not even the do's and don'ts, but but the other stuff. I don't want to be under that law. Do you? No, I want to live differently. And, And Paul says, be led by the Spirit and you're not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is all of these good things. Against such things, there is no law. And he kind of wraps up this section in in the next slide that we have here. And he says this, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So putting aside all of these requirements, we just simply live by the Spirit. Another place he looks at, we're going to look in Galatians chapter 3 real quick. Because in Galatians 3, he kind of has this similar idea. And he tells us that this idea that we should just try to do good, try to do the right things and don't do the wrong things is is fruitless. He he quotes actually some of the very Old Testament principles that the people of Israel live by to show in them both there's futility, but also hope that's pointing to the future. And he says in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, these things, he says this, all who rely on observing the law, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. There's that 613 number we just talked about. I'm going to live by the law. If you're going to live by the law, you've got to do all of it. Not just the stuff that you think is good and helpful, but everything that's written in the book of the law. That includes all those do's and don'ts and includes all those horrible punishments and things that come out of it. We don't want to be as believers in Jesus Christ trying to just do good, live by this law, because ultimately we are cursed. Next verse, he says this. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. So if the law was given to Israel to help them be right with God, the whole sacrificial system that was thrown at them, do this, do this, do this. When you don't do these things right, you take this animal on this day to this place, sacrifice it this way, offer it in this manner. The priest will absolve you. You do these festivals, you do these celebrations, and ultimately you're justified before God. And you have to do that over and over and over again. He says, look, clearly no one's justified. And one of the reasons is you have to do it over and over and over again. One of the great Uh, Jewish festivals, the Day of Atonement, that annual day where they would celebrate God's deliverance by the sacrificial system. They would take the the scapegoat and send it out to the wilderness. Symbolically, all the sins of the people of Israel sent away to never return. Guess what happened the next year on that same day? All over again. You know why? Because they messed up again. Just like you and me on a regular basis. We try to be good, we want to be good, but it's pointless. So Paul says, look, don't think the law is going to help because you're cursed because you can't keep it all. And even in the Old Testament, how does it say the righteous will live? The righteous will live by faith. He goes on in the next verse and continues and points to another place in the Old Testament. He says this, the law is not based on faith. The righteous will live by faith, but the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. And the last verse in this section, he says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So cursed are we if we try to keep everything in law because we can't. And ultimately, Christ takes that curse for us because we can't keep the law. Christ 
on himself took the full punishment of the law to make redemption because he did perfectly keep the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to complete it, to fulfill it, to perfect it, depending on which idea in that word that that he uses in Greek you want to pull there. And so he completes it. He fulfills it so that he takes the curse that is rightfully mine on himself. So I no longer have to live under the law. Rather, I can live, what did Galatians 5.16 say? I can live by the Spirit and naturally not fulfill the desires of the law. Now, those are great theological ideas. But if you're like me, sometimes you want an example. You like examples? I hope so. Because that's what I got left. And if you don't like them, it's going to be a long few minutes. I got three for you. Number one, a woman in Samaria in John chapter 4 goes out to the well to get a drink of water, to fill her jug of water. Telling story, it's, it's a relatively familiar one. She's going to the well at an odd time of day all alone because she wasn't trying to be good. And she was good, apparently, at not trying to be good. And so she had to, because of her reputation, go when, when nobody else went. When who should she stumble upon at that well but Jesus himself? Who says to her that he would like her to give him a drink of water? Which is shocking and scandalous because she is a Samaritan. And good Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. Not only that, she is a woman. Sorry, women folk. Even if we are going to serve you pancakes in a few weeks, sorry. And that's not kosher. Yeah, that's a good word either. And not only that, she is a woman of questionable reputation. Hence the time of day she's coming to the well. And Jesus speaks to her. And she's surprised by this, and a conversation develops about, well, living water. Jesus asks for a drink, and then ultimately says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me not for water that came from this well, which was a well-known well in Jewish history, but for living water, water that if you drink, you'll never be thirsty again. And she says, well, that's interesting. That's not the like King James Version, but nonetheless, she kind of has continues this conversation. And Jesus makes this offer. He says, listen, go bring your husband and we'll talk more about it. Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know that reputation comes up. And she has a series of bad relationships, including the person she's with now who is not her husband. And in typical human fashion, promptly changed the subject. I see that you are a prophet, she says. You know things you shouldn't know, I guess. Tell me, where should we go to church? Jews say, worship there, we worship here, which which is the right place to go to church, to worship? And Jesus promptly, not in so many words, kind of tells her, quit going to church. I should have used that a few weeks ago, but we'll pass right over it. Until finally, it says, after this conversation in, in verses 28 and 29, it says something interesting about this Samaritan woman. I think, if I'm lucky, they'll pop up on the screen because I don't have them marked in my Bible. Then, leaving her water jug. Well, what in the world would she do that for? Why did she come to the well? That's not a hard question. Everybody together, 
Okay, together means all at the same time. And everybody means everybody. So why'd she come to the well? I feel like a choir director. To get water. What do you put the water in? And now after a conversation, what does she do? Why would she do that? Because something happened. Something changed. In fact, the next verse tells us that she went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, that's not the kind of people we often brag about knowing, right? He told me every, usually if you tell something, everybody, everything they ever did, that's not a positive thing. But her big question is, could this be the Christ? The one that we've been waiting for. The Messiah, the promised anointed one of God. Could this be? In that moment, nothing else mattered. Who she was, what she had did, what she had did, uh, what she had done, or what she was doing didn't matter. She dropped everything because she knew something had changed in her life. She left her jug. The next person I want to remind you of is Mary. It says in John 8, verses 1 and 2, it tells us a little bit about this Mary Magdalene, or called Magdalene. I'm hoping the verses pop up. Good. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, which we would expect because they were his disciples. But it tells us, along with them were others that went with him. In the next verse, it tells us, and also Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out. That's quite a reputation, yes? She had lived her life, seven demons Mark tells us Jesus did it. I think we kind of assume that, right? Uh, but nonetheless, seven demons cast out of her, and it says in this passage she's traveling around with Jesus. That would be a pretty significant thing, right? How, what would it take for you to leave the life that you're living and follow around somebody from town to town, place to place? I mean, in addition to the fact that our world just sort of doesn't always work that way these days, but that's what she did. She left the life that she had to follow Jesus. She went with him everywhere. Not only that, as his life came to a close, as he was arrested, tried, beaten, convicted, sentenced to die, carried his cross to Calvary and was nailed to it, she was there watching. A lot of his other, the 12 we just saw, most of them had scattered. They'd run for the hills. If you're party leader is a convicted treason person who's going to be killed for his crimes, probably not the kind of person who will, yep, I'm with him. His disciples kind of said, nope, we don't know him. In fact, Peter did it famously, not once, not twice, but thrice, I say. And Mary Magdalene, along with some others, were there, not willing to disavow their allegiance to Jesus there at the cross. She prepared his body so that it could be taken to the tomb. And early on the first day of the week, the Bible would tell us, she, along with a few others, went to the tomb where he had been laid, only to see the stone rolled away and only to be given the privilege of being one of the first evangelists ever to go and tell his disciples that he's no longer here. What was it that made her live that kind of life. I don't think it was, you know, I just want to be a good person. I think there was something else at work. Third example. This is the one I relate to the most, and I bet 
some of you may as well, is in Luke chapter 10, and it concerns a couple of sisters. Mary and Martha were their names, who were going to have a very famous guest over. Jesus himself coming to their house. Now, Mary and Martha also had a brother you may have heard of by the name of Lazarus, popular in Scripture. Lazarus rose from the dead. Uh, Friends of Jesus, maybe some of the closest people to him outside of that traveling group that went with him, the disciples and others that we just read about. Uh, And he's visiting them. And I don't know about you, but when you have a pretty famous guest, does that take a lot of work? I would say guys, but we all know we should just ask that question to the ladies, right? Yep. You're scrambling around. You're making sure the house is clean. You're getting everything ready. You probably have a meal to prepare. You want it to be just right. I mean, after all, this is somebody that you admire. This is somebody that you look up to. This is somebody you want to make a good impression on. And Martha is busy, 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 busy. And her sister is a lazy bum. According to Martha, anyway. Because you know what her sister has the guts to do? Maybe I should say has the gall to do. When Jesus comes in, as Martha's making sure everything is ready, Mary just sits down and talks to their guest. Just sits down and chats with him. She sits at his feet. She hangs on his every word. This is where I can relate to Martha. This is where a guy who was raised in church and who accepted Christ at a very young age and who really hasn't done a lot of crazy stuff. You know, I'm not an evangelist because I can't get up here and tell you the story of all the drugs I've taken and all this sort of thing. I can't, I don't have those stories, but you know, my story is no different than those. It might not be as sensational, but I was just as dead in my trespasses and sin as the worst sinner you could imagine was. And it was only the grace of God expressed through the shed blood of Jesus that redeemed me. There's no difference. We're all the same in that way. But as a kid and as a young man who wanted to be good, it really annoyed me when people didn't try as hard to be good as I was. Anybody else feel that pain? And you know what happens sometimes is people that don't only not try to be good, but actually are really good at being bad. Somehow good things happen to them. Sometimes God things happen to them. Like they realize the badness of their bad and they turn to faith in Christ and somehow they have remarkable testimonies of the grace of God and sometimes we who've all been good all our life just kind of go, well, I've been that way, done that. There's another story in the Bible. We're not going to talk about that one except in passing. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus tells the story. Same thing, really. There's a young brother who basically goes to his dad and says, I wish you'd die so I can have my inheritance. But since you're not going to die, just give me my inheritance anyway. And he gets it, and he goes away, and he wastes it all. And the older brother is left at home working faithfully. He's the Martha. He's in the kitchen. He's in the field. He's doing whatever has to be done. He's looking after dad. And then the younger brother comes back, and what does dad have the gall to do? welcome that younger brother back and restore him to the family and give him the fattened calf, which the older brother says, I've been here my whole life and you wouldn't even give me that. And he, that little traitorous, evil, lecherous son of yours, gets the feast. I added a few words. By the way, prodigal God 
by Tim Keller. Great book about that very thing. If you can watch the video where he tells the story, he does a really good job because he's a preacher type. Anyway, beautiful story because he puts the emphasis not on the younger brother but on us older brothers that kind of go, well, gee, who do they think they are? Because we've been trying to be good. Like Martha, we've been trying to be busy and about the things of God and all you do. And she says to Jesus, she goes, she's had enough. Anybody ever had enough? I've had enough. I've got to say something. I'm going to say it to Jesus. And she does. She goes right to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, and says this. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work. I'm going to add that because I'm sure she meant it. By myself. Tell her to help me. Well, that seems like a reasonable request. She's just looking for a little help. Just wants an extra set of hands in the kitchen. There's a lot of food to serve. There's a lot of dishes to do. Why would that be so? What does Jesus say? You would think Jesus would say, you know what? That was rude of us. We should not have ignored your hard work and just sat here and talked. Get up, Mary, you lazy bum. Help your sister. Wouldn't that be a great ending to the story for us older brother types, us Martha types? That's not what Jesus says. What does he say? Next verse tells us, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But I'll tell you this. There's only one thing needed. How many things are needed? One. You're worried and upset about how many things? Many things. Next slide. But there is only one thing needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. It will not be taken away from her. I think when we try to be good, too often we get stressed out about the many things like Martha. We get worried and worked up about all these things. And Jesus said there's one thing that's needed. One thing. And when we focus on that one thing, it sort of takes care of all the rest. Kind of like live by the Spirit. And you will not satisfy or gratify the desires of the sinful nature. What's the one thing? To live by the Spirit. Anybody have an iPhone? iPad? I anything? iPod? Apple fans in the house? Yes, okay. Not that this is an Apple thing. Do you know, it was 2007 when the first iPhone came out. That's really not that long ago, is it? 2010 when the iPad came out. That's really not that long ago. And for most of us, that's revolutionized how we communicate with each other. Whether you have those devices or ones that are clones of them and are trying to kind of dovetail on that. Are you satisfied with your iPhone? I mean, as a rule. We got any people that get in line for the new one as soon as it comes out? 6S. We got any 6S's here? Just curious. Yeah, okay. I should know. <laughs> See, Carlos, he's always on, on the cutting edge of the technology, yeah? Here's the interesting thing to me. And really, this does have a point, not about Apple. Um, I think it's John Piper that says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. It's an idea that doesn't just come from him, but from others. 
and I think about that, and I think about my iPhone, which I left in the office. Oops. I think about how much I use it and how much I just can't imagine not having some of the tools that are available through that and other devices like that. And you know what happens when, when thousands of people all over our country are satisfied with their iPhones and their iPads and other iMacs and all the other Apple devices that are out there? You know who often gets propped up? Glorified, they would say. Yep, there's a movie out about him, I think. As, as all of these consumers are satisfied, Steve Jobs is sort of a, a cult hero. And one more thing he would say in his addresses, and that was usually a, kind of that last little revelation every year at, at the, the different conferences they would give. Steve Jobs is held up as a visionary and as all those things. You know what happens with us? You know what our one thing is? It's the same thing as Mary. It's the same thing as the woman at the well. It's the same thing as Mary called Magdalene. It's being satisfied in Jesus. It's wanting to sit at his feet. It's wanting to follow him around from town to town to make sure we hear everything he might say and watch everything he does and catch every detail of his life and know him in a way that even if it means we have to wait at the foot of the cross while he dies, we're not going to go away. It means leaving what we thought at the time was the most important thing we had, that water jug, for that water that was going to provide for the, the family and ways of cleaning and washing and, and all the things that water would do. It's leaving that aside because there's something else that's more important. It's not hey, I've got certain things to do because God says I've got to do this and I can't do that and I'm going to focus on being good. No. The one thing I'm going to do is live by the Spirit. It's follow after Christ. It's stay in step with the Spirit. And then, guess what happens to all that other stuff? It just sort of takes care of itself. The book of Matthew says it this way. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. So yeah, as much as it sounds like I'm trying to put myself out of a job, I think it's a good thing to quit going to church if all it is is ritual and empty performance. No, it's more than that. I think it's a good thing to quit saying your prayers if all it means is reciting the same words that you say in certain times at certain places for certain reasons. I think it's a great thing to quit reading the Bible like it's a novel or an escape or that you need some inspiration. I even think it's a good thing to quit trying to be good if it means instead of all of those things, the drive and the focus of your life is seeking after sitting at the feet of, following wherever he goes, Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for what you have done for us that we were incapable of doing for ourselves. That when we were sinners, 
you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sin. That we owed you a debt, as as Paul calls it. We were under a curse. And yet Jesus steps in and takes the curse upon himself. So instead, we might have life and hope and salvation. And Lord, I pray today for anyone here who has never trusted you in that way, who has sought to somehow please or placate you by doing good and avoiding bad. Lord, today they'll see that when we're honest, there's nothing good in us. That we gravitate toward sinful choices when left to our own desires and urges. And that it's only when you step in and in our place die on the cross that we can find salvation when we turn from our sin and trust you as Lord. And Father, today, if there's someone here who needs to turn from their sin and turn to you in faith as Lord and Savior, I pray that today will be that day of salvation. That they would call upon you. You would hear and you would answer and you would save and guarantee them not only the eternity in heaven, but also your presence and your power and your spirit and your life right now today. And Lord, I know there are many of us in here who have already made that decision. But we have a lot of Martha in us. We have a lot of older brother in us. We have a lot of that thinking that doing good depends on me and my abilities and and my willpower and my discipline. When in reality, we've proven to ourselves over and over again, our willpower will break and our discipline will crumble. And no matter how much we desire something, Lord, eventually we can be pulled away. But we want to get out of our own abilities or power or want to and instead sit at your feet follow you wherever you lead that we want to stay in step with and be led by and live by your spirit and then the natural result is we'll end up doing the good the things that speak of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Lord, thank you again that you've saved us only by your grace, by that demonstration of your love on the cross. Lord, in these moments we come to you and ask that you convict us where we need to be convicted, that you Encourage us where that's needed. Lord, that you call ultimately call us to yourself and that we'll heed that still small voice of your spirit. And may you have your way in this time of response, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.